1: Brian Winter is the editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly. He covers the politics of Latin America, has been watching over the last few weeks as protests rolled through Ecuador and Chile and eventually Bolivia.
2: It's chaos, right? But it's been slowly building and more slowly building than than most people believe. So it's it's, it's been a surprise uh, the way it's happened, but the alarms have been flashing yellow for quite some time.
1: Brian could really see these alarms flashing when he looked at the commodities market.
2: Why commodities? Because, you know, the 2000s were really a great decade for the region. You saw tens of millions of people come out of poverty and into the middle class. You saw the middle class become the single biggest group of Latin Americans for the first time in the region's history. And that was all fine and good, but it also created high expectations. And recently, those boom times have come to an end.
1: Demand for oil and metals. It was floating not just entire economies, but political careers, too. Brian saw this up close when he was living in Brazil. Looking back at the last decade, he says this commodities boom, it looks like the main ingredient in a successful Latin American presidency. And now that the boom has gone bust, you can feel the anxiety.
2: So I am a Brazil guy above all. Um, I worked there as a reporter for five years from 2010 to 2015. And I go back about once every two or three months. And what surprised me being back now was the degree to which people were (laughs) kind of freaked out, you know, when I was there. And I always make a point of talking to a really wide variety of people. And I spoke to folks who were worried even about a, you know, an invasion of, of radicals or people from Bolivia coming across the border into Mato Grosso state, which is Brazil's soy belt and is the state that that borders Bolivia. And I I think that's, you know, extremely unlikely, let's put it that way. But it reflects again this this overall climate of things being unsettled right now.
1: Today on the show, we're going to look at just one of these countries where protest is swirling. Bolivia was for a long time a model of left-leaning political and economic progress. So what went wrong? I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover.
0: Just
1: last week, protests in Bolivia led Evo Morales to flee his own country, giving up on his pursuit of an unprecedented fourth term as president. Brian Winter says this was a jarring turn for a Latin American leader who had succeeded where others hadn't. Morales presided over a period of economic growth that cut extreme poverty in half. And as an indigenous man, Morales lifted native Bolivian culture in a country that often struggles with race. You can actually see how influential Morales has been just by flying into the capital.
2: One of the really striking things when you go to La Paz is you fly into uh, the International Airport, which is actually in this pro-Morales area just outside the city. And the airport, if I'm not mistaken, is at about 13,000 feet above sea level. Uh, it's it's one of the highest airports in the world, and this is the area that was Morales's traditional support base. And that's partly because this was the only area where indigenous people could afford to live. And one of the striking things about La Paz is that the city is essentially a canyon that then descends down from where that airport is gradually. And historically, more or less, and there are exceptions to this, but more or less, the lower you go, the richer the people, and the more european looking the people i mean it's very striking if you go there as a visitor and you know the city is still segregated but after 14 years of morales's rule and all the improvement that you saw in poverty and so on in that area around the airport that city called el alto it has been utterly transformed you see a lot of glorious houses it's statistics like life expectancy and infant mortality. Healthcare care has, has gotten better as a result. This was a period where life got indisputably better for everybody, but, but particularly for people at the bottom of the social pyramid.
1: What I think is interesting about what's happening in Bolivia in particular is that Bolivia was a place that seemed to be doing things a little bit differently. The, the country was set up to share the wealth. And that was because of Evo Morales. So I'm wondering if you can tell the story a little bit of how he came to power.
2: So I first interviewed Evo Morales when he was just a member of Congress and a former Uh, Coca growing, and Coca, of course, being the raw material used to make cocaine, union leader uh, who was just getting his start in politics. This was around, I guess, 2003, 2004. I interviewed him in Bolivia's Congress. And he'd walk through the halls and see all the portraits on the walls of all these past legislators, and almost every single one was white. Almost every single one was clearly of European descent. Very few, if any of them, looked like him. And then you would go into his office and he would talk to you about, you know, the indigenous people who form roughly, uh, you know, roughly 40 percent of the population who identify that way and had always been neglected, et cetera. He came into office after a period of instability, not unlike the one we're seeing right now. And expectations were, frankly, pretty low. Um, because there had been so much you know, Bolivia, even in a South American context, had been perennially unstable. And because he was on the left and because he was taking power at a moment where you know, things had not gone well for some leftist leaders, I remember at the time that people were like, well, OK, I guess we'll see how this goes. And two things happened. One of them that happened across the region and the other one, which was more specific to Bolivia, as you have just pointed out. The first one was the commodities boom and clearly Abel Morales benefited from that and had great timing. I mean he came into office just as this was was revving up.
1: How did how did he harness that?
2: What Abel Morales did that was different was he essentially embraced math. <laughs> and what I mean by that is he understood fiscal accounts. He understood that he needed to redistribute the wealth, and he needed to use this windfall that came from um, the commodities Bolivia exported, and and spend it in a way that would allow for poverty to decline. and He did that, but he also, for a very long time, maintained control of the fiscal accounts in a way that was very different from what you saw in Venezuela, um, but also Brazil for that matter. And also Argentina. I mean, Evo did understand that he needed to keep control on that.
1: When you say when you say maintain control, what do you mean exactly?
2: I mean, the deficits never got too high until recently. And this is part of what has complicated Evo's life recently is that he's he's leaving Bolivia at a time when the budget deficit will be the equivalent to about 8 percent of GDP, uh, which is consistent with when things got really bad in Brazil and Argentina these last couple of years. But he the, the point is, he kept control of that for a long time. And so Bolivia only recently came under severe financial strain. And I, that sounds simple and maybe even a little bit boring. But let me tell you, I mean, that has been the big difference maker as far as these last couple of years between countries where the economy has been merely disappointing, meaning growing like 2%, 3% and disastrous, as has been the case with um, Brazil and, and, to a lesser extent, Argentina.
1: It's interesting to hear you talk because you're really, you're setting up Evo Morales as someone who made a lot of good decisions, both optically because he very much embraced this indigenous culture, but then also making these really interesting financial decisions that sort of allowed the country to move forward and get rid of poverty. This sounds really positive.
2: It was really positive. I mean, you know, if you get into the business of selecting good guys and bad guys <laughs> when you're dealing with Latin America uh, and trying to see things in just very simple black and white terms, it's, it's, it's a path to being misled and, and, and being disappointed. The truth is, is that for Morales, for a very long time, um, he did very well. You saw poverty fall dramatically in a, in a country that had traditionally been South America's poorest. But then, you know, as often happens, and this is a a classic human story and a classic South American story, he just didn't know when to leave. Um, And and we saw this coming. By the way, this was not a secret. I mean, the publication that I run, America's Quarterly, we sent a reporter to La Paz, but specifically to Evo Morales' traditional stronghold, which is the satellite city called El Alto. And we published a story in 2018 um, where the headline was, Thanks, But Goodbye. (laughs) Why some of Evo Morales' supporters want him to move on. And it was all about people who loved him but who also had deep misgivings about a fourth presidential term. And there are some things about even Bolivian indigenous culture, which I I don't pretend to be an expert on. But uh, what I've read recently is, especially in highland cultures, they, they really place a lot of importance upon the rotation of leadership because they see it as a burden for people involved. And you could just feel the country getting uneasy with the fact that he didn't seem to know when to leave.
1: So what happened here? How did he end up staying for so long? Well, I mean, he sort of
2: stretched the legal framework in order to be there for a third term. And then there was a popular referendum where he essentially asked the Bolivian people if he could run for a fourth. And the Bolivian people said no. They voted against it. And um, one of the courts decided or ruled that Preventing Morales from running for a fourth term was a violation of his human rights because he had a quote unquote human right to run for a fourth term. So he did. But, you know, again, at this point, the economy had slowed down. These finances of the government that he had always taken good care of were starting to fall apart. You saw people who were genuinely moved by what they felt was uh, anti-democratic practices and some of the pressures that just build up. when when a party sticks around in power for too long.
1: All this tension came to a boil last month on Election Day. A broad constituency of Bolivians seemed to be rallying against Morales, religious fundamentalists, economic conservatives, pro-democracy advocates.
2: So let's look at what got us to this point. They held an election. And in order to avoid a runoff, he had to win by more than 10 percentage points. He did not have that lead. Uh, The quote unquote vote counting system shut down for 24 hours. And when it came back online, lo and behold, Morales supposedly had just enough votes in order to keep that 10 point margin and therefore avoid a runoff.
1: The electricity went out, right?
2: Yeah, supposedly. I mean, look, (laughs) why was he so eager to avoid a runoff? It's very simple. It's because he believed he might lose. He believed that in a one on one race against this guy, Carlos Mesa, you know, a, an opposition leader, that Mesa might be able to put together enough votes to beat him. The point is, you you, you had a very disputed election. Uh, he was trying to hold on. And that was when, that was when all hell broke loose.
1: Yeah, what did the streets look like after that?
2: Well, I mean, you saw people who were very upset because they felt like an election had been stolen. And you saw, Uh, rioting in some places, you saw police cracking down in others, uh, and things got very ugly. Just hours after Evo Morales announced he was stepping down, he accused the police of an illegal warrant for his arrest, and he says his home was attacked by violent groups. Protesters packed
1: the streets of the capital.
2: And, you know, then we saw this military intervention, which I, I think can be accurately described as a coup. I know that there's some controversy over the nomenclature of that. And now what you've seen take power there is a what appears to be a a hard right, authoritarian government taking hold with the support of the military that does not appear particularly representative of the Bolivian people and is doing things like cutting off relations with Venezuela that interim governments are not supposed to do.
1: At the same time Morales resigned, his vice president did, too along with leaders of both chambers of the legislature. That left the Senate's second vice president, a lesser-known politician named Janine Añez, next in line. She declared herself interim president while carrying a giant Bible in her arms,
2: her real role in a situation like this should be to, you know, basically be a consensus figure and call free, fair, democratic elections as soon as possible. Uh, and by free and fair, it's complicated right now, right? Because that that also means that the MAS, uh, which is Evo uh, Morales's party, needs to be able to participate. And that it's not clear right now that that's what we're going to get.
1: It was interesting to me to hear you describe this as a military coup, because I think that's been so confusing over the last week. It's been the number one question I've had. Like, what is this? Is this a coup? And you see a lot of left wing politicians in the United States saying it is one. Why do you use that word?
2: Yeah, I've waded into a bit of a firestorm here by using that word. But let me explain. I mean, my understanding of the definition of this is when the military forces somebody out under implicit or a- explicit threat of violence, basically, and that I mean, I, I, seems to be what happened here. I, I know it's a bit complicated. I know that there's there have been reports that Morales ordered the military to crack down on the protesters who were against him, that the military then refused, uh, that the military then quote-unquote suggested he should leave. To me, in that context, that sounds a lot to me like a coup. Now, the reason people are arguing about it so much, though, is interesting. Because coup has an especially, it has retained an especially negative connotation in today's Latin America. So that's why people are so either eager to call it a coup or eager to say that it's not. To me, the trickier question is, when is a coup okay? And there are people who will say never. And there are people who will say, well, look, uh, if, if the person in power had already grossly violated democratic norms by attempting to rig an election, then maybe we shouldn't be so freaked out by this. And I have to say, just on a personal basis, my thinking on this has evolved somewhat because of Venezuela. You look at the way that Maduro has held on to power. Uh, has murdered thousands of people, uh, has forced uh, more than four million Venezuelans out of the country through his policies. The only way out of the Venezuelan crisis seems to be, at this point, a intervention by the Venezuelan military. And you know, it it has raised questions about how do you say goodbye to governments like this that have such a ironclad grip on power and who refuse to let go. At what point do some of these other alternatives become acceptable? And that's hard for me to say as, you know, somebody who who believes in democracy above all and I continue to have that belief, but I also recognize as Venezuela has shown us and as Bolivia has shown us that things start becoming more complicated, you know, when the government that's in power has either completely destroyed Democracy, as was the case with Venezuela, or, or appears to be starting to destroy it or is, is down the road of destroying it, as was the case, appeared to be the case in Bolivia.
1: Hmm. I saw this one quote that said the process of fixing semi-democracies is likely to be semi-democratic.
2: That's exactly right. That was Javier Corrales, uh, who a professor who wrote that for the New York Times. And he was making a more elegant version of the same point that I'm trying to make right now, which is that, you know, if if what you know, what do you do? What are the solutions when neither side is behaving within democratic norms? And I think returning to a point I, I suppose I'm I'm now is becoming a bit tiresome, but I'll say again. Uh, choosing sides is is just so difficult right now. And sometimes you have to look at both, you know, both sides or all sides and say that there's there's a lot of deception and bad anti-democratic behavior in, in all of them.
1: For Brian Winter, the question is, what happens now? Within 90 days, the country should be having new presidential elections. But beyond that, the future's unclear.
2: The huge problem with something like what we've seen in Bolivia is that you end up unleashing other forces that are, uh, in a lot of cases, even more radical than what was there before. And there's always a risk with Bolivia that is somewhat unique in a South American context, but has been part of the political landscape for a very long time. I I hate to even say it out loud because I feel like I'm I'm sort of I'm I'm speaking a taboo. It's certainly not something I want to see happen. But there's a there's a history in Bolivia of separatism. Santa Cruz, which is the, the kind of the the soy belt a comparatively prosperous part of the country where you see a lot of people of European descent has always been very different from the highland areas, which tend to be more indigenous and poorer and and which, of course, Morales represents. And that risk of the country literally coming apart. I mean, we saw kind of a surge in that concern a couple of years ago. It's been quieter lately. But it's always lurking there in the background with Bolivia. And you see this this polarization as a result of the behavior of this interim government. You know, there's always that risk of a crack up when Bolivia is involved. And so I think a lot of us are watching very carefully in, in the hope that that doesn't happen, but with eyes wide open in terms of the potential that it might.
1: Brian Winter, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Brian Winter is the editor-in-chief of America's Quarterly. He's also the vice president for policy at the America Society Council of the Americas. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Mara Silvers, Daniel Hewitt, Jason DeLeon, and Mary Wilson. I'm Mary Harris. I will catch you back here tomorrow. This is
0: the story of The One.